Uh, we're up to a bit of a weird bit in Acts, um, to be honest. Um, we've kind of so far thought that Acts is all about Jesus going to the nations, um, and yet all of a sudden this week, Paul, the messenger of the gospel, has come back to Jerusalem. And his whole outward trajectory is suddenly turned back in on itself, which is a bit strange. So a lot of actually other churches, they get to Acts 21, and they do one sermon from 21 to 28, the rest of the book. In other words, we have no idea what to do with this. This is what they're saying. We'll just do one sermon, just get rid of it. Because it doesn't quite fit the idea, does it? Jesus to the nations, but it's turned back on itself. I think Jesus to the nations is, is a big point in Acts, but there's more to it. Um, People are a bit confused about exactly why Luke wrote Acts, um, but there's one thing that I think is pretty clear. Let me, let me try to paint a little picture of this one reason, at least, why Acts was written. So at the end of Acts, uh, we meet the Apostle Paul in prison in Rome, awaiting trial. Now, there's another guy there, a guy called Theophilus, and he's a rich Roman guy, probably in Rome. Um, he may well be involved in Paul's trial, maybe, but at the very least, uh, Theophilus has heard about Christianity, uh, but he's got his doubts. You see, the Apostle Paul, the messenger of Christianity, is in prison. Sounds a bit dodgy, doesn't it? How can you trust the message if the messenger's in prison? Theophilus has heard the accusations against Paul as well. One, he, he's a troublemaker. We've seen that right throughout Acts, haven't we? Two, he's not even a real Jew. He's come up with these other ideas that, that aren't from Judaism. He's not a real Jew. He doesn't come under the Roman protection of Judaism. So that's why Luke's writing this bit at the end of Acts. He's trying to defend Paul, defend the, the messenger of the Christian gospel, defend Christianity, really. That's why we've got all these trial scenes at the end here. Because Luke wants Theophilus to be confident about Christianity, to be able to stand firm on the truth. And friends, that's what I want for you. I really do want that. I hope you don't think I'm just saying that because this is a sermon or something. I really do want you to stand firm in the truth about Jesus, the glorious, wonderful, freeing truth that God has given us his son to live for us, to die for us, to rise again, that we might really live. We might know God and be his people. So I think we need these chapters too. Because we're tempted to hear those accusations and to kind of to give in to them, to believe them. I mean, I don't know if you've heard this accusation before, that Christians are troublemakers. You know, we're troublemakers to our society, which is kind of traveling along a particular trajectory. And we sort of get in the way. We, we kind of question moral developments. We, we question about SRE in schools. We, we cause trouble. You know, I hear it loud and clear, like, Dan... We're happy for you to feed the hungry and help the poor, but can you please just, enough about the Jesus stuff, please. Do you hear that? Do you kind of get that impression? And I, for one, don't really like to be a troublemaker, and so I wonder if I should sort of go soft on things. That's accusation number one, but then there's another one. The other accusation Paul faced as well is we're accused of not being Jewish. No, not really. You've never had that, have you? No, I hope not. I'm not Jewish, <laughs> but it's something like that. We're, we're accused of not actually being historical. Our faith is just a bunch of ideas, right? We just kind of developed some ideas about theories of forgiveness and grace alone or something like that. And we just stand on a bunch of ideas. 
and other people have got their own bunch of ideas. There's these two things we hear, and that can kind of shake our faith, but, but I want us to be certain. Uh, Luke wants us to be certain, to stand firm. My prayer is as we look at Acts and Paul's uh, defense of the faith, uh, that we too will, will be able to stand more firm. So just before we get to these readings, let me try to set the scene a little bit. Um, Paul's been traveling around the Mediterranean, as, as we've heard, and he's come back to Jerusalem. Um, the, the Christian elders, the apostles, are really happy to see him, um, but uh, there's a problem. So, so look with me at chapter 21 and verse 20. Chapter 21, verse 20. When they, the, the, the apostles, heard Paul's news of his journeys, they glorified God and said, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are who have believed, and maybe but, they are all zealous for the law. That's that's an alarm bell word, zealous. It's come up a bit in the past, and it always means danger. A zealous Jew is someone who is passionately protective of their national identity. Uh, they, They are passionate about things like the temple and the law. These things that kind of make Judaism what it is. They're passionately against the other nations, the Gentiles. They're passionate about their dream that one day that the Messiah King will come and set them above all the nations. They're passionate. This is this zealous passion. If it was an Australian, they might be, you know, someone who wants the Union Jack off the flag and wants to stop the boats uh, someone who, you know, would take up arms if barbecues were made illegal. You know, this, this kind of thing. Rawr! They'd be aggressive. Kind of make that Jewish and more passionate, uh, but less redneck. And you've got the idea, sort of. They're zealous. But, verse 21, look with me there. But they, these zealous Jews, have been told about you, Paul, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles, to abandon Moses. That's what they've heard, that you're teaching the, the Jews to abandon the law of Moses by telling them not to circumcise their children or to walk in our customs. They believe you're a traitor, Paul, and they're passionate about this. There's going to be trouble here. Verse 22, what are we going to do? It's, it's going to get messy. And so they think they come up with this kind of plan to make Paul look like a, a really good Jew. Maybe people will believe him that he really is on our team. He's not a traitor. But it's a to- it to- completely backflips. It, it's a flop. It doesn't work at all. You see, in Jerusalem at the time, it's festival time. The place is jam-packed with zealous Jews. It's, it's kind of raging. It's pumping. The, the, the temperature is high. It's kind of, it's Cronulla Beach on Australia Day. You know, it's kind of like passionate about Australian identity. VB and uh, Southern Crosses everywhere, you know. And some of them, these Jews, these zealous Jews, they spot Paul, the anti-Jew. And it's on. Look with me at verse 28. So they're shouting, men of Israel, help. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people, our law, and this place. It's not true, by the way, just in case you're confused. It's not true, but that's what they're saying. What's more, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has profaned this holy place. 
for they'd previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian in the city with him, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple complex. The whole city was stirred up, and the people rushed together. They seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple complex, and at once the gates were shut. So there's this big kind of mob thing going on. And the commander in, in, in the fortress, Antonia, just overlooking the temple, comes on down with his troops and grabs Paul out of the melee and then takes him up towards the barracks, taking him up the stairs. And that's where we get our first reading. That's the background for our first reading. Penny's going to come and bring us that reading if you look at chapter 22 and verse 37. So we're beginning from chapter 21, verse 37, and continuing into chapter 22. As he was about to be brought into the barracks, Paul said to the commander, am I allowed to say something to you? He replied, do you know Greek? Aren't you the Egyptian who raised a rebellion some time ago and led 4,000 assassins into the wilderness? Paul said, I am a Jewish man from Tarsus of Cilicia, a citizen of an important city, Now I ask you, let me speak to the people. After he had given permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned with his hand to the people. When there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language. Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defence before you. When they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even quieter. He continued, I am a Jewish man born in Tarsus of Cilicia, and brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel and educated according to the strict view of our patriarchal law. Being zealous for God, just as all of you are today, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women in jail, as both the high priest and the whole council of elders can testify about me. After I received letters from them to the brothers, I travelled to Damascus to bring those who were prisoners there to be punished in Jerusalem. As I was travelling and near Damascus, about noon, an intense light from heaven suddenly flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I answered, Who are you, Lord? He said to me, I am Jesus the Nazarene, the one you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but they did not hear the voice of the one who was speaking to me. Then I said, What should I do, Lord? And the Lord told me, Get up and go into Damascus, and there you will be told about everything that is a sign for you to do. Since I couldn't see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. Someone named Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good reputation with all the Jews residing there, came and stood by me and said, Brother Saul, regain your sight. And in that very hour, I looked up and saw him. Then he said, the God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear the sound of his voice. For you will be a witness for him to all people and what you have seen, of of what you have seen and heard. And now why delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins by calling on his name. After I came back to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple complex, I went into a visionary state and saw him telling me, hurry and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. But I said, 
Lord, they know that in synagogue after synagogue I had those who believed in you imprisoned and beaten. And when the blood of your witness Stephen was being shed, I was standing by and approving, and I guarded the clothes of those who killed him. Then he said to me, Go, because I will send you far away to the Gentiles. They listened to him up to this word. Then they raised their voices shouting, Wipe this person off the earth. It's a disgrace for him to live. And uh, the commander takes Paul back into the barracks. And he doesn't know why people have just have lost it over Paul. He's trying to figure out what the charges are. And so he decides, as you do, we'll whip the truth out of Paul. You know, that's a good idea. Just whip the truth out of him. Uh, but before they can lay uh, a flogging on him at all, uh, he says, I'm a Roman citizen. Um, you're not meant to flog us until we're proven guilty. And the commander says, oh, yeah, that, that is right. I'm not going to do that. Uh, but how are we going to figure out the accusations here? I know, he says, I'll bring you, Paul, before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, and let them clarify what their charges are against you. And that's where our second reading comes. Steve's going to read for us uh, from chapter 22 and verse 30. So if you turn to page 1028, uh, chapter 22, starting at verse 30. The next day... Since the Roman commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he released him and instructed the chief priests and all of the Sanhedrin to convene. Then he brought Paul down and placed him before them. Paul looked intently at the Sanhedrin and said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience until this day. But the high priest Ananias ordered those who were standing next to him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. You are sitting there judging me according to the law, and in violation of the law, are you, are you ordering me to be struck? And those standing nearby said, Do you dare revile God's high priest? I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, replied Paul, for it is written, you must not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Then Paul realized that one part of the set were Sadducees and the other part Pharisees, and he cried out in the Sanhedrin, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees, and I'm being judged because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees affirm them all. The shouting grew loud, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party got up and argued vehemently, We find nothing evil in this man. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? When the dispute became violent, the commander feared that Paul might be torn apart by them and ordered the troops to go down, rescue him from them, and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stopped by him and said, Have courage, for as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. When it was day, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves under a curse 
neither to eat nor to drink until they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who had formed this plot. These men went to the chief priests and elders and said, we've bound ourselves under a solemn curse that we won't eat anything until we have killed Paul. So now you, along with the Sanhedrin, make a request to the commander that he bring him down to you as if you were going to investigate his case more thoroughly. However, before he gets near, we are ready to kill him. But the son of Paul's sister, hearing about their ambush, came and entered the barracks and reported it to Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the commander because he has something to report to him. Thanks, Penny and Steve. Um, So just to remind us where we're up to, uh, Paul's been accused of two particular things, that he's a troublemaker, that he's not really a Jew. He's just kind of making up his own ideas. So we're going to deal with those things one at a time. First, the Jewish thing. And the first point is this, Paul is still a Jew. Um, We're going to touch on this more next week, but but here we go. Notice the way he speaks of himself straight off the bat. Chapter 22 and verse 3, where he identifies with his, his hearers. I am a Jewish man, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, the capital, Jerusalem, at the feet of Gamaliel, the famous rabbi, educated according to the strict view of our patriarchal law, being zealous for God, just as all of you are today. I'm just like you guys. That's what I was. That's who I was. And then see how he speaks of Ananias in verse 12. Someone named Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good reputation with all the Jews residing there. Paul's trying to say, what's happened to me is not outside of Judaism. And then how Ananias speaks to him in verse 14. Ananias said, The God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, dot, dot, dot. Uh, What Paul's trying to say is, I'm still one of you guys. I'm still following the God of our fathers. I've not changed. We see the same thing kind of happening as he stands before the Sanhedrin. Um, I like that he kind of gets one line out, punch in the face. That's it. Great. Thanks. One line. Thank you. But then he says, hang on a second. You're meant to be judging me according to the law but you're breaking the law to have me hit. And then they say, Paul, that's the high priest you're talking to. And he says, oh, I'm sorry. And he quotes the law. We're meant to see Paul's actually more faithful to the law than, than these Jewish, the Jewish council is. He's a genuine Jew. And then notice just with me in chapter 23 and verse 29, how the commander of the Romans summarizes what's going on. This is his, his conclusion written ultimately to Theophilus, who also is a Roman. I found out, verse 29, I found out that the accusations were about disputed matters in their law. Conclusion, this this guy's Jewish. He's just within Judaism. Friends, I want to say straight off the bat, um, you don't belong to some faith that's just kind of a couple of centuries old and just kind of made up. You know of those religions that are only like a couple of centuries old, or even less, I often think, did, did the truth just evolve just, just recently? You know, this is not us. We, we belong to the, to the next chapter of the Jewish story, which stretches all the way back to the beginning of time. That's our faith. We ought to stand on it. And this point has actually given me real pause for thought this week about the nature of our faith. Um, you see... 
I often think of my faith, what I believe, as kind of being a, um, a, an interconnected web of ideas. You know, like you've got these ideas like I'm saved by grace and, and there's the cross thing and, and there's kind of forgiveness and there's evangelism and good works and they all kind of somehow fit together and they tie together in this kind of web of ideas and that's my faith. And the strength of my faith depends on how strong that web is. And when it comes to sharing my faith, it means sharing a bunch of ideas. And it often takes the form of an argument. Now, I want you to notice how Paul defends himself. Is it an argument? A bunch of ideas that he presents? He just tells a story, doesn't he? Now, Paul's got an interconnecting web of ideas, a theology in his head. He can talk about that, no problems, but that's not what he does here. He's not giving a philosophy class, he gives a history class. He just tells his story. He says, this was me beforehand, I was just like you guys. And then he says, I was confronted by Jesus. So look with me, chapter 22 and verse 6. Verse 6, as I was traveling and near Damascus about noon, an intense light from heaven suddenly flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I answered, who are you, Lord? He said to me, I am Jesus, the Nazarene, the one who you are persecuting. And I love the way Paul doesn't ask any questions. He doesn't ask for a proof. Really, Jesus? Come on, give me some evidence here. No, he's just confronted he, he sees the light, he hears the voice, that's it. No questions, no space for doubting. He has been confronted in history by the person Jesus. And that's it. Friends, I just wonder if this kind of perspective of thinking more historically might actually help us stand firm in our faith and even speak about our faith. You see, the Bible is not just you know, our faith is not just a bunch of clever arguments that all kind of link together the details of the Bible. It's, it's not, our faith is in facts, moments, history, Jesus himself, that he lived, died, rose again. Isn't it? That's what we believe. And sure, that has meaning, a bunch of ideas maybe, but it's based in history. I've been um, reading this year a bunch of stuff about predestination and election and things. I read, I read this book. Uh, or most of it. I haven't read, finished this one yet. This is by Bart about election. And then I read this little one about election and predestination. And then I read this one uh, about election and predestination. And then I read this article um, uh, by McCormack on the same topic. And tell you what, they're all convincing and I'm quite confused. <laughs> I kind of left thinking, actually, do I even know what I believe anymore? That might sound strange. Yes, I'm your minister. Yeah. I like, what do I believe? And so those moments I have to kind of stop and go, you know what? Did Jesus live? Did he die? Did he rise again? Yes. Those are the things. I believe those things happened. I'm not confused about those things. That is what my faith is built on. Built on history. Friends, I want to encourage you to stand firm in the history of Jesus. And not just, not just the history of what happened to him, but also the history of how he confronted you 
in your history. I'm talking about your story. I suppose Jesus has confronted you in your story at some point, made himself real to you unavoidably. Friends, I wonder when we think about sharing our faith, maybe we shouldn't think so much about a bunch of ideas that I am an arguer. Maybe we should think, actually, I'm a storyteller. I'm a witness to history. That's what Ananias said Paul would be in verse 15. You, Paul, will be a witness for Jesus to all people of what you have seen and heard, not of all the ideas you came up with. You'll be a witness to what you've seen and heard. Maybe we ought to think about ourselves like that. People like to hear stories. I assume you've got a story. Not, not just of Jesus' history, you can talk about that, but also your own history with Jesus. I believe Jesus lived and died and rose again, and he's changed my life forever. People might actually take you to ideas, but Dan, what about this, that, and the other? And you can argue, great, we can do that. But it might get too tricky, and you have to say, you know what, I don't know the answer to that question, but I do know this. Jesus lived, died, rose again, and he's changed my life forever. Friends, stand firm in the history of Jesus. You don't just believe in a bunch of ideas. You believe in history, and actually a history that goes back to the beginning of time itself. Well, that's the first accusation Luke deals with. Paul, he's not a Jew. Yes, he is. The second is this. Paul's a troublemaker. I hope you can see that it's totally clear in these passages that Luke is saying, you're right. He's completely turning it the other way around, isn't he? It's not Paul who's the troublemaker. It's the very people who are accusing Paul who keep causing the trouble. So right at the beginning, there's this, this wild riot in the temple, and they didn't even know the evidence was true or not, and it wasn't. And then again, when, when Paul defends himself before the Sanhedrin, look with me at verse 22, chapter 22 and verse 22, yeah, 22, 22. So they listened to Paul up to this word, Gentile. Then they raised their voices, shouting, wipe this person off the earth. It's a disgrace for him to even live. Um, you know when you're reading a newspaper and, and you get one quote from someone and it's completely designed to make you think they're a terrible person. What an idiot, that kind of thing. Um, I was talking to a mate during the week. He said there should be a law that if you quote someone, you have to include the whole interview as well somewhere. That would be good, wouldn't it? Because people just will hear what they want to hear, don't they? Uh, disregard all the rest and just hear what they want to hear, that, that one thing. And that's what they've done with Paul. Blah, 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 Gentiles. Oh! They get angry, this national, passionate national identity that just blows up. And they start yelling and flinging off their, their, their cloaks and throwing dust in the air. It, it's quite a sight, I think, uh, if it wasn't so volatile. And, and then the third thing is he's there before the Sanhedrin. He gets one line out, punching them out. And so he thinks to himself, well, that option's not going to work. I'm not going to give, I'm not going to try speaking. And so what he does is he grabs this big fat cat and throws it into a room of angry pigeons. He says, I'm being judged because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. And they're at it again. Bang, bang, bang. Hammer and tongs. Pharisees, there is resurrection. Sadducees, there's no resurrection. Mob style. The point is very clear, isn't it? Who's the troublemaker? 
And finally, there's this vicious, murderous curse that the Jews put on themselves to ambush and kill Paul. It's lovely. Good, good reading for the kids. You know, Nasty stuff. And again, the message is so clear for Theophilus. Who's the troublemaker? And in case he's in any doubt, what did the, how, did the, how have the Romans treated Paul in the past? This is the point to Theophilus. How has the Romans treated Paul? How should you treat Paul? Well, look what the commander does in chapter 23 and verse 23. This is what they, how they treat Paul. He summoned two of his centurions and said, Get 200 soldiers ready with 70 cavalry and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Also provide mounts so they can put Paul on them and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. One guy, 470 soldiers. <laughs> Romans, they don't do things by halves, do they? Just full on. Why are they doing this? Why are they rescuing him, keeping him safe? Well, verse 29 there, just look a few more verses down. Because this is the Romans' conclusion, I found that that found out that the accusations were about disputed matters in their law and that there was no charge that merited death or chains. That's like the conclusion, right? That's the one thing Theophilus needs to know about Paul and his trial that's coming up. The Romans have found that he's a Jew and he's done nothing deserving chains or death because he's not the troublemaker. Friends, we must not be the troublemakers either. As the ambassadors of Christ, we must not be troublemakers either. Look with me at chapter 23, verse 1, the, the one line Paul does manage to get out. He looks intently at the Sanhedrin and says, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience until this day. That's how he defends himself. When it comes to defending the gospel, our conduct is at least as important as any words we might speak. A Franciscan priest, Brendan Manning, once said, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, then walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world finds simply unbelievable. Paul lived his life before God with, in all good conscience. Can you say that? I have lived my life before God in all good conscience. Paul doesn't say he's perfect. No, he, 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 when he does the wrong thing, he repents and makes restitution. He tries to make it right. It's what he does with the high priest right here. I'm sorry I didn't realize you were the high priest. We must not be known as troublemakers, brothers and sisters as we hold out the gospel of Jesus. But, <laughs> but having said that, the gospel causes trouble, doesn't it? Like it did there in the Sanhedrin. Like a big cat sometimes thrown in amongst the pigeons. We must not ca cause trouble for our own reasons, for our own sake, uh, but the gospel, it'll cause troubles. It always does. Because it threatens people's idols. If you'd been reading Acts carefully, you'd notice that the, the riot that happened in the temple in chapter 21 was very similar to the riot in Ephesus in chapter 20. In fact, the people who started the riot in Jerusalem could have been at the, at the riot in Ephesus. Do you remember why the riot in Ephesus happened? 
because their idol Artemis was being threatened by the gospel, and they arced up. Their idol was threatened. And I think we're meant to see as well that the same thing's happening in Jerusalem. The Jews have made an idol out of their national identity, their, their passion for the temple and the law. And Paul gets a bit too close. He's a bit too threatening on those idols. And so they arc up. There's a mob. Doesn't the same thing happen to us? Have you ever looked at, um, at, a, at a news report on, on the ABC, on an article on the ABC website? And you see at the bottom there's the comments. You can leave comments and reply to other people's comments and things. And if someone ever, a Christian, ever responds to, to one of these articles with some kind of moral thing that's clearly from a Christian angle, and if, if, they, if they can be very gracious, they can be very gentle about it all, but what's the next reply? <laughs> you know, have you seen that? This massive arcing up. How can you speak about it? How can you bring Jesus into this, you Christians? Because we've just gotten too close to one of our cultural idols. Moral relativity. No one can tell me how to live. No God's going to impose on my life. And they arc up. Back in Thessalonica a few chapters ago, Paul was accused of turning the world upside down because he threatened people's cultural idols. But who's to say their world was the right way around in the first place? Do you know what I mean? You see, the gospel meets a world that is upside down, worshipping idols rather than living as the children of God in perfect freedom, knowing his love. The gospel meets this upside down world and calls it to repent to turn back to Jesus, to turn to life itself. But that's threatening. That'll cause troubles. Brothers and sisters, you and I mustn't be troublemakers for our own reasons. But as we hold out the gospel, it'll probably cause troubles. But that'll probably be a good thing. Well, Just to sum up, Luke and I both really want us to have certainty in the things we've heard, to stand firm in what we believe. So let me just recap. Know that if your faith causes trouble, it's probably a good thing if it's your faith. But don't be guilty of being a troublemaker for your own reasons. Secondly, know that you stand firm in history, a long history of truth. We are the next chapter in the ancient Jewish story. You stand in history, not not just ideas. We are witnesses to history. The history of Jesus back, back, you know, 2,000 years ago, but also of how Jesus has confronted you in your history. And the glorious thing is this. The Lord Jesus is still confronting people, still confronting us, isn't he? Each time we come to church, each time we look in his word. Would you just look at one more verse with me? Chapter 23, verse 11. I think this is a beautiful, beautiful verse. Paul's in jail. Uh, He could be quite anxious, as you'd imagine. But the following night, the Lord 
Jesus stood by him. How's that? The Lord stood by him and said, Have courage, for as you've testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. The Lord Jesus is risen, not on earth anymore. He's risen, but he's still confronting people. He's still breaking into our history with his own history. We're actually going to have communion just now, actually. In fact, I'll invite the band to jump up. I'll get out of your way and you guys can start setting up. Communion is all about strengthening our faith, uh, that we could stand firm in Jesus. We remember where his history, his death and resurrection, the, the, the bread and the juice, they're symbols of, the, of these things that happened in history, Jesus' death, his resurrection. It's in communion that those events confront us again in our history today. And he invites us to, to take that in, to ingest him, to, to take his history into our own. What's going to happen is, is during this next song, uh, some people are going to hand out some bread and some juice. Please feel free to take them, hold on to them. If you're a follower of Jesus, please be our guest and do that with us this evening. And after uh, the song is finished, we will uh, eat and drink together. We're going to sing now um, a good hymn, Be Still My Soul, uh, encouraging us to stand firm. Uh, there's plenty of reasons why we might be shaken in our faith, but we have good reason to stand firm in what Jesus has done for us. So please stand and take some bread and wine together.